welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Mike and Ian. And we are, as always, reading through the Aubrey Matron canon of Patrick O'Brien. Ian, we're on to chapter nine of the Yellow Admiral. But what happened last week and what do we have to look forward to today? Let's take a look, Mike. Last week, it was quite the chapter. Stephen had regained his fortune. We hardly noticed. He had visited Diana. He'd heard about Sophie's <clears throat> education, um, thanks to Clarissa and Diana. Uh, he had prescribed for Abel Stranra, and we don't know yet how that's turned out. He had brought a letter for Jack, and just as importantly, a message of Sophie's dear, dear love. That was a fantastic moment. Jack was pleased with this, the plan that Stephen and Sir Joseph had hatched for him to work in Chilean waters during Stephen's mission while he might be waiting for a reinstatement and waiting for the possibility of a flag. And we had closed the chapter, Mike, with, mm, I think, Jack a, a little bit un unhappy with the idea that it might be mentioned as merely a possibility. That's going to be on our right. minds early in this chapter. So what are we getting into this week, Mike? Well, the squadron is going to be reinforced with ships, but no reinforcement in the sense of supplies or mail is forthcoming. Stephen's going to perform his most frequent surgery, or you Stephen Matcherin fans, and I'm trying to remember which one it is. Preserved Killick has some great moments. Jack is going to get some kudos from O'Brien, at least, um, but he's going to be worrying about the French Navy and... God between us and evil, the potential end of the war. Oh, Mike, uneasy times here. That's right. Oh, but, but Ian, as we joined our heroes, I was so excited when we turned the page and it's Christmas Eve. And I thought, yeah. oh, another Christmas canon story. I love this. But it's December 24th, as I say. The Bologna is very low in stores. And in the morning, there are two fishing ships on the ocean side of her. And they've got this huge catch of mackerel and porpoises. And they can't be seen by the watchers on shore. So Harding sends a boat out. They manage to buy this. And the catch saves Christmas dinner. But alas, huh. that's all we hear about Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fast forward with it, you know, next paragraph, it's a month later and they've received no store ships, no posts, no news other than some rumors of a French reversal in Leipzig. And Jack and Stephen sit down to eat what Jack refers to as a fetid, nasty and goddamn meager breakfast and precious thin coffee. And Jack's telling Stephen that he just can't make heads or tails out of the weather, can't figure it out. It reminds him of the strong wind and fog they'd encountered in Patagonia. And O'Brien you know, gives us a little plug back. I don't remember actually reading this story, but tells us that Stephen had acquired the remains of an extinct giant ground sloth on that trip. I'm like, Oh, and this turns out to be a real thing, a mylodon. Huh. Yeah, I, and really a creature, really from Patagonia, this Chilean, Argentinian area. One of the few mammals of that age, very, very, you know, old, old, old age, where the mummified skin remains, just like the 18 square inches that Stephen says that he has here. So I'm just hoping to myself, uh-oh, Chile, we've got Chilean co-conspirators. I hope they don't turn out to be sort of giant ground sloth-like. Oh, no, that would not suit. Ah, especially after the slow pace of things on the previous visit to South America. Goodness me. Well, as they're sitting enjoying their breakfast, we, we get to, to dive into Jack picking up on this word 
possibility that he had used in a very kind of sniffy way at the end of the previous chapter. And Jack says, I've been thinking about the, here are his words, the extraordinary and, I'm afraid, very ungrateful way I jibbed at the word probability when they had been talking about Stephen's beautiful scheme. And Jack says, he's thought about it a little bit, he's got some perspective. It's nonsense, he says, to think that he could conceivably have the certainty of a flag years ahead of when it would be granted. And he talks about how many men and therefore how many promotions and uh, and deaths and actions must lie between him and the possibility of even a regular shot at a flag. However, he says he could increase the probability if he distinguishes himself between now and then to help wipe out some of the uncivil reports that are making the rounds against him. So he says, do you see, I quite withdraw any implied fling at the word probability, although on the other hand, I do cling, cling with all my might to reinstatement. You did use the word reinstatement, did you not? And Stephen replies, I did. And as I recall, it was quite unqualified. And this is this is a moment for Jack to appreciate. He says, it's the most beautiful English word, and he should know. <laughs> Um, and he honours dear Sir Joseph. I'm not sure that Sophie Aubrey would appreciate him saying that reinstatement is the most beautiful word in the English language, but we'll <laughs> we'll take it for now. Nice. Well, Killick sticks his head in the door just about now, and Jack says, you know, what is it, Killick? And, uh, you know, O'Brien tells us that Killick has this look of surly triumph. He points his thumb at the doctor and says, which I only wanted to ask his honour where this little green parcel was to go in the dispensary, down the head. Stephen almost loses it, not the way. <laughs> but he realizes that he's forgotten all about what he calls this Troy pound of Jackson's best mocha. You know, he brought it back from London. He's telling us that, you know, Troy weight is, you know, it's, it's a precious substance. So they weigh it in Troy weight. And, you know, I'm thinking Troy weight. What? And it turns out, you know, precious metals, black powder and gemstones are weighed in Troy weight. So yeah, this is, this is to our semen, very, very precious stuff. And mm. Stephen replies and O'Brien writes, good Killick, honest Killick, pray grind it as fast as ever human power allows and make up a noble great pot. And then <laughs> the text says, Killick had never been called honest before. And he was not at all sure how he liked it now. He sidled out with suspicious glances back into the cabin. And I, you know, I, I was thinking to myself, oh, we, you know, there's so many good killing sections and we don't include them. So I, you know, we had to, we had to have this one here. And this chapter actually has several of them. Really good killing oh, great. moments. Who are you calling honest? <laughs> that's right. Well, and, and the, the other theme that's preying on us, of course, as well as Jack's career is that is the progress of the war. And Jack, goes on to discuss this notion that Stephen has, that the war may be over soon. Jack says, I don't know much about the political side, but from the naval side, all other things being equal, weight of metal decides a battle. And I think this is Jack kind of putting together in his mind here, what are the odds of a big action here off the breast coast and which combinations of ships might mean which side is going to have the advantage. As an example, he says, a 12-pounder frigate can't take on a ship of the line. And Stephen has a smile on his face as he says, well, there have been exceptions. And Jack says, no, 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 surely not. And then he realizes that Stephen's alluding to what must be, in Jack's mind at this moment, ancient history, to the, the days of the Sophie and the Cacafuego back at the beginning of the canon. 
And I, I don't think it's false modesty on Jack's part. I think he is genuinely in a different place in his career. He's a different kind of captain. He's a different man. And it's a different kind of war than way back in 1801 when he was buccaneering his way around the Mediterranean. So there is this more kind of cold calculus in his mind about weight of metal and also about the, 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 the total sizes of the fleets here. Jack points out that the French are actually building ships at great pace. We, we've talked a lot at various times in the canon about the Americans building ships fast. As Jack is pointing out, the French were building really, really fast as well. They have much more oak available, the raw material, um, than the British do. He's very sure that they'll soon be outnumbered. I'm like, this is a, a little reminder in my mind of the kind of grand economic picture that Admiral Stranraer has been talking about, that war is an extension of the power of a country's economy. And in terms of this particular part of the economy, raw materials turning them into ships, France has got some kind of a potential advantage. And Stephen says, yeah, perhaps that's true, all other things being equal. But generally, it said, other things are not equal. And he's inviting Jack to, to, to be a little bit gung-ho here. British seamanship, says Stephen, is said to be better and Jack, again, is very dispassionate, very kind of downbeat. The Americans have showed that we're not infallible. The French have always built better ships. And he, he reminds us of something that we got from our friend Olivier uh, many episodes ago now. Once the Navy put its revolutionary ideas aside, and Napoleon did not, had knocked on the head all those pernicious democratic and republican notions, this new race of French sea officers, professional sea officers, not political devotees of the of the revolution are not to be underestimated and that's why the admiralty has been reinforcing this blockading squadron so much and i think this is why jack is making this calculation of tonnages and ships and weight of metal in his head jack is called away to his cost because stephen is left with the coffee pot and uh, off he goes mike to perform a surgery that we've heard about before he does and i love that this is this phenomenal coffee that uh, Killings <laughs> just reminded him they have. And, and Stephen has to go perform the surgery, but he stays long enough to drink the entire pot of coffee. Yep. <laughs> and this, this, this will come back. But so Stephen is doing, ta-da, a suprapubic cystotomy. Have we, uh, have we heard that many times before? Well, I, I, I went back and I can count at least four books so far and two more to come. Where oh, wow. Things. Yeah, where they're either done or referenced, and uh, he's he's very calm because he knows this stuff, and that reassures the patient. He says, and Bryce always the patient is pretty calm, but he is held down by leather covered chains, and he's also had thirty drops of laudanum. And <laughs> Stephen tells the patient that he's going to pour some spirits of wine over his belly to take the pain away, and then. O'Brien tells us about the surgery. It's successful. And afterwards, Stephen's assistant, Macaulay, asks him why he uses the spirits of wine. He says, you know, does that have a particular virtue? And, you know, Stephen says, Stephen, you know, can't name a particular virtue. He says that the sudden chilling from evaporation has some effect. But, you know, Stephen thinks that knowing that the surgeon wishes to avoid giving pain probably helps more. But Stephen admits that he uses it because his teacher, Duranton, at the Hotel Dieu, had always done so when opening an abdomen, and, and he was remarkably successful. 
So Stephen says, the words of the text, so I do the same, perhaps out of a superstitious reverence for my master. And then Macaulay says, well, he intends to imitate Stephen regardless of the cost. So I, I love this kind of lineage of, you know, of, of passing down. You know, we've had Jack with all his, you know, midshipmen gone to, on to be captains and, you know, all these youngsters that he's raised up. And now Stephen in this long line of things. Although, interestingly, you know, we know, looking back, that, hey, by the way, this alcohol is an antiseptic. Now, if Stephen or Macaulay had ever watched any of the movies where anytime we're going to do, you know, surgery with a razor blade in a cabin in the wild, you know, we always get a bottle of bourbon or something and pour it on that that wound first. But, (laughs) yeah, I'm thinking, but that's way before this time. But a little bit of research said that, no, actually, alcohol was used as an antiseptic. They, you know, didn't call it that as early as 1363, and that forms of germ theory were proposed in 1546 and 1762. So we're in 1814. Although even the later one, 1762, was disdained in Europe, including Britain, where Galen's miasma theory was still dominant among scientists and doctors. So it's interesting, you know, once again, we've got kind of O'Brien setting Stephen up in a little chain of, you know, perhaps empirical physicians who say, okay, we've got this theory, but I've noticed that this always works, so I'm going to use it. But ah, doing, interestingly- Doing the right thing for the wrong reason, you might say. <laughs> well, exactly. Well put. Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. Now, last chapter, we had all these great spot-on medical references, but I couldn't find a thing about this Durantin. I, you know, hmm. uh, the Patrick O'Brien muster book also came up zero. So I don't know whether this is just a fun thing that um, O'Brien inserted or- you know, Stephen had another colleague that started with the D that I thought, well, I wonder if O'Brien got crossed. I don't know. But Oh, yeah. Well, we, we may never find out. That's right. Anyhow, <laughs> I, I, having completed this operation successfully, Stephen goes up on deck to take the air. And uh, Lieutenant Harding has Weatherby fetch him a tarpaulin jacket with a hood, which is a very fancy garment. Um this is going to protect him from a gust of rain that's blowing across the deck. And Harding hopes to show Stephen some of the squadron's reinforcing ships that are just joining right now, including the Grampus, which is new to being in the bay, um, and therefore, with their lack of local knowledge, is staying very close to the Bellona. And Stephen asks for an explanation. What is this Grampus? And Harding says she's an unhappy 50-gun ship and might... Lots of us O'Brien readers are going, oh, yeah, we remember another 50-gun ship. You remember the horrible old Leopard? And we get a little reminder about one of the many reasons why the Leopard was horrible and unhappy. There's the unhappiness of the weight of metal, of the kind of chances that you've got for honorable combat. A 50-gun ship can't really fight a 74, and frigates seeing her two decks will run a mile. And even if she should then take a frigate there's no glory in it if she is beaten by a frigate as she could very well be by one of the heavy american frigates or one of the new french frigates it's a total disgrace so they're kind of on a hiding to nothing and harding goes on and describes some of the rest of the new ships that are currently not visible are currently hidden from view by the bad weather and just as he's talking thank heavens for the tarpaulin jacket here a freakish wave comes over the nettings Never mind the jacket, it knocks Stephen down and soaks him thoroughly. Harding, I, I don't know why Harding feels that he needs to apologize for the action of a wave, but there you go. 
uh, he dabs ineffectually at Stephen with his handkerchief and delivers him to two elderly seamen, old uh, friends of the canon here, Joe Place and Amos Dre, who in their turn take Stephen below, find him a warm, dry cabin, and cast indignant looks at Lieutenant Harding for getting their doctor soaked. And Mike, it's a lovely moment here, isn't it? Everyone's job in the crew really is to look out for Stephen because he's really a lover and uh, they, they can't tolerate the bad judgment and the bad taste of the lieutenant in putting Stephen in a place where he'd get soaked like this. Love that. <laughs> ah. Well, Killick appears again, changes Stephen, dries him, you know, and, and gives him some medical advice, which I loved. And, you know, Jack then comes in. He's completely soaked from being on the main top, and he changes very quickly. He comes out wearing his rear admiral's uniform coat. You know, it, he says it's the only dry one he could find changing quickly. And he, he remarks, you know, the deer knows whether I shall ever appear in it publicly again. So, you know, we're thinking this beautiful coat that we had from the time of the Commodore when he had his broad pennant. And, and you know, with all the talk of yellowing, with Stephen's plan for him to leave service and hopefully be reinstated one day and, and maybe make Rear Admiral, I'm sure Jack really does wonder, you know, am I ever going to wear this coat again? Yeah, it's just another sneaky little bit of jeopardy, another little reminder of the challenges for Jack, right? Right. They sit down to dinner. Jack says the liquid before them is technically known as soup. And he ladles some out for Stephen. And Stephen says, well, it's, you know, it's really pleasant to see peas that are so old and worn that even the weevils won't eat them and they've died next to him. So here we get to, <laughs> you know, we get to sup on predator and prey to nourish us here. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, you know, I, I, O'Brien keeps giving us these little references to these long overdue supply ships and, and the impact throughout the ship on everybody from top to bottom here. Um, but both of them, you know, kind of talk about how it's being served in this West Indies silver service that Sophie was unable to sell. And, and you know, they both love how it's, it's better served out in silver that way. And then comes in what they call a truly villainous piece of salt beef, which has made its way back you know, and forth to the American station before finally coming out to the wow. squadron. You know, just awful, you know, hard, horny, terrible. And, uh, but Jack, you know, eats it right along and starts to continue his morning conversation about this threat of the French Navy. So, you know, Jack's kind of, philo- you know, some people say the war is soon going to be over. Jack's afraid it might be over, but not the same way other people see it. He's wondering about this French Navy thing. Yeah, and he goes into an example. And I can't quite tell if this is really intended to educate Stephen or if it's just Jack, you know, Jack's conversational worry beads coming out here. He wants to talk through an example of an action between a friendship and uh, and, a, and a British one. His example is the Eurotus, which is one of the new frigates that's joined the squadron. And we'll, we'll dig into what the Eurotus is and where she comes from and where she doesn't in a couple of seconds. Earlier in that same year, which O'Brien keeps wanting to remind us is 1814, uh, two frigates had got out of Brest in the story that Jack is telling, and one of them, the Chlorinde, was spotted by the Eurotus on her way back after a successful cruise. The Eurotus, calculating the weight of metal here, had a 601-pound broadside weight of metal compared to 463 for the Chlorinde, and the size and number of their crews was about the same, and so action was joined. The Eurotus chased her for several hours before passing under the Clorin's stern and firing a starboard broadside. And as the Eurotus luffed up, Clorin had fired fast and straight, had brought down the Eurotus's mizzenmast, just as Clorin's own foremast 
had carried away. The chances in this battle starting to be evened up despite the initial advantage that the British ship had had. And after hours of blazing away side by side, the Eurotas had a mainmast shot away, Clorin's mainmast came down, and an hour later the Eurotas was mastless and the Chlorine, almost so, had moved out of gunshot range. So these two have pounded each other into wrecks and the apparent you know, weight advantage of the British ship had not paid off, at least not at this point. There'd been some repairs. The chase had begun again in the morning. The chlorine had been six miles ahead when help arrived on the scene, HMS Dryad and HMS Akates. And I think Dryad was at some point attached to, to Midshipman Babington, but we'll, we'll come back to that maybe later. The moral of the story from Jack's worrying aloud here is this. He says, at present... A Frenchman, inferior in metal and in sailing qualities, is so well-manned and so well-officered that she can fight like ten bulldogs and reduce one of our heaviest and best frigates to a dismasted hulk. And this, he's explaining, is why he's uneasy hearing about how fast the French are building ships. Because he knows if they're modern and well-built ships, they'll be well-sailed and these days also well-led and well-fought. He'd still like to take on a French 74 but yeah, this is the new Jack Aubrey. He wouldn't take on two of them. And I, I think the, uh, the 1810 Jack Aubrey would, in, in a frigate would have taken on any two French frigates and fancied his chances. Just as Jack is debating this aloud to himself, uh, he stops because we hear what might be distant thunder or might be distant gunfire. So, Mike, I, I, we were digging into HMS Eurotus. Um, she was a 46-gun frigate, heavy frigate, just like Jack says, launched in March 1813. So absolutely right. In this timeline, she was a new one of the new generation of frigates. Didn't last very long, broken up in late 1817. Stephen mentions in the text the origin of the name. Eurota is the name of the, the stream on which the city of Sparta stood. And interestingly, I, I got a little reminder somewhere in the back of my memory. So I went digging for other mentions of Eurotas. In Treason's Harbour, O'Brien gave us a reference to an earlier Eurotas. Jack Aubrey claims to Admiral Hart to have been the third lieutenant of HMS Eurotas many years before our story started, so therefore presumably in the real-world timeline sometime back in the 1790s. But there aren't any records for another HMS Eurotas far back then, so O'Brien committed a minor, minor anachronism back earlier in the canon. But right here, Mike, he seems to be pretty on it with his references to the ship names here. They're listening. They've sent, I think, Harding down in the hole to listen. And everybody confirms that, you know, it sounds like it's gunfire. And they believe it's Ramillies and Abakir who are engaging French ships in a sea fight some way off. So Jack tells Weed in the tender to go ahead. You know, you go find out what's happening. And he signals for the Grampus to join him as they head towards the fight. Jack goes back to the cabin and Killick who had seen the doctor drink the rest of the pot, has another pot of coffee on the way. It says, I think it says that Jack threw a suspicious look at the coffee pot as he walked in, you know, thinking there's not going to be any left for me. But uh, Killick's taken care of him. Um, now, he's Jack is delighted that the French have taken advantage of the change in wind to come out. And he announces that as soon as he finishes his coffee and changes his coat, he's going up, in his words, to urge the ship on by force of mind and adds privately, and keep my fingers crossed. So, you know, Jack you know, is like, okay, whatever superstition it takes, man, we're going to get there. We're going to get to this action here. 
Yeah, we, we've had this as well before. Jack is pretty sure just by kind of standing there. I, I can't remember what the reference was. There was some point where he said he, he was more or less clenching his butt cheeks, you know, and just that action of, you know, physically willing the ship along. He expects to have some effect. And the, the, the text pins this really nicely. It says, he might indeed have indulged in even grosser forms of superstition. For this dreadful bay, thickly sown with rocks, isolated or in reefs, largely invisible through low cloud, sheets of rain, and even downright fog, called for a mind that could retain some hundreds of bearings and shift the internal chart according to the ship's speed and directions, never forgetting the local current and the all-important ebb and flow of the tide. Fortunately, Jack possessed this sort of mind, if not to perfection, then at least to a high degree. So, for all, he's more cautious and he's more careful and he's a little bit more jaded about the world. This is still Jack Aubrey with his full powers of seamanship under command and he is in the right time and the right place for him to use his skills here. He really knows this bay as well. We've already had the reminder that Grampus, the new ship on the squadron, doesn't. But Jack really knows it after all of his time patrolling and surveying and he's described as being on terms of good understanding. Friendship might be the better word with the Bellona and her people. So that, that's another old Jack touchstone, his skill in unifying and commanding and really understanding and leading a ship and her people. It's interesting Ian, that this is going to be one of several times that O'Brien really seems to be pinning a star on Jack's chest. I mean, he's really yeah. kind of... You know, telling us, you know, Jack is great. Jack is great. It really, it, it actually a little. I loved it, and it made me a little nervous <laughs> sometimes when <laughs> when O'Brien praises somebody up. Bad things happen, but I, I will will continue on here. Well, the Grampus, as, as, as O'Brien reminds us again, perfectly new to breast, you know, yeah. follows yeah. the Bologna so closely that Jack has to station a man with a speaking trumpet to warn her when they're about to attack. He doesn't want the ship, you know coming right into a mirror. Now, Stephen stands on deck and he's thinking, you know, the ship must be going at great speed, but he can't tell it because, you know, of the way they're, you know, they're kind of, they can't see much. The sea, the foam, you know, all these squalls and fog lit by battle lanterns are, are kind of making this perilous water really difficult to see where they are. Now, Stephen says that he's comforted by the wet, cheerful, and unconcerned faces of the crew around him, ready to move at the word of command. And he thinks that, you know, that about them thinking that they're competent, at home, and eagerly expectant. And and you know, I'm getting I'm getting like really revved up here. It says, you know, yeah, finally, you know, we haven't seen action in a while. This sounds like some really good action here. And after all of Jack's stories about you know, the prowess of the French Navy here and what could happen. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, you got this 50-gun Grampus with you and, you know, a couple of smaller frigates out there ahead of you maybe. Wonder wonder what they're going to see here. But I'm, I'm ready. Yeah. But we're hoping for it. Some of the crew are clearly hoping for it. Some of them are dreading it. And Stephen is down in the sick berth. It's three o'clock in the morning and he is checking in on the sick berth, which he describes as a gently lamp lit haven of peace, presumably as a big juxtaposition against all the warlike thoughts that are kind of looming here. All of his patients and their attendants are fast asleep and Stephen notices a change in the motion of the ship and he heads back to the Bellona's quarter deck. 
Jack says, they've reached the end, the western end of the Black Rocks, and they're starting their run for the Goulet, the inlet where Brest is, uh, when they hear some ships banging away east of St. Matthews. And Jack says, dear Lord, what a prodigious great deal of weather. Not a fit night out for man or beast, as the centaur observed. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> so, uh, Mike, what, I, we, we use this phrase for man or beast over and over again, but Jack's attempting some kind of a witticism here. Where do you think this might come from? Well, he is. It's interesting because I, I, I went back and I thought, you know, we do say this all the time, fit night out from man or beast. Where does it come from? I couldn't find it. I couldn't find uh-huh. it. I mean, there's some references to W.C. Fields in like an early 1900s, you know, film. And I thought, no, 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 it's not that. It's not it. And it wasn't good enough. Now, there is a biblical reference, which is a jumping off point for the phrase man or beast in, in Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah. But it's not about the weather here. But I just... I actually chortled on this line because, oh, a centaur, a man and a beast. Yeah, fit night out for man or beast. <laughs> so I thought, I, I actually like this. This is one of those times when I wasn't laughing at Jack. I was laughing with Jack. This oh, was good. Happy times. By the way, W.C. Fields, he would have been great casting for Killick. But that's... Oh, my gosh. That, that's an acronym <laughs> way too far. <laughs> Love it. Oh, very good. Well, they, they continue to sail on, presumably in the hopes of joining in this action, wherever it turns out to be. Jack is displaying his great knowledge of the area, of the rocks and shoals, keeping them and the Grampus in company with them safe from harm. The cloud and fog lifts a bit with the first hint of day, and they see stabbing gunfire ahead. And Mike, I was half expecting that this is going to be, you know, the gun crews exercising or a thunderstorm or something, but it really is an action taking place. Jack is glad that the fog has not lifted enough for the St. Matthew battery to see them and engage them because right now they're passing under the guns of the St. Matthew battery. The tender Ringle finds them and Reed reports that there are two French 74s who have battered the Aboukir and the Ramillies pretty badly, almost in a sort of 274's version of the one frigate story that Jack had been telling a little while ago. The Abokir is stuck on a rock and would have been boarded if another frigate from the squadron, the Nyad, had not come up and peppered them. The Ramillies, meanwhile, had hit one of the French 74's hard and there was an explosion amidships. So there's a, there's a full-blown action going on here between ships of the line and learning more about this, Jack has Reed lay out a kedge, lay out an anchor, hoping that with luck, the tide will lift her in about 20 minutes. Jack calls for the master gunner, Mr. Mears, has a short and formal exchange, beats to quarters and sends Stephen below. Mike, it's sounding now like it's all on, right? Uh, it does to me. It really does. I'm, I'm loving this. And, and there's part of my mind thinking, uh-oh, you know, Jack was saying earlier, you know, I go up against 174, but I wouldn't go up against 274s. And here we go. We've had some damage. There are 274s. I'm thinking, okay, let's go. Let's go. Well, you know, O'Brien, as he so often does, you know, is not going to give us a direct report of actions right this minute. He takes us back to Stephen and his assistants sitting, listening in the cockpit. They've you know laid everything out. They're ready for injuries and surgery. And the firing from these other ships, they haven't quite gotten there yet, you know, makes all their bottles 
tremble. And sure enough, the abacure lifts just like Jack predicted she would. You know, you know, Jack, instead of being worried, says, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the tide in 20 minutes. You know, she's going to come up and has, you know, reads this. Kedge gets her off and she brings her guns to bear. And, and O'Brien tells us, you know, she returns the enemy fire. He writes with all the pent up fury of a ship that has been punished without being able to reply. Mm. And I'm thinking, yeah, here we go. We're, we're into it. But he goes on to say, but their own battle, the Bologna's rippling broadside that they've heard so often during the great gun exercise did not begin. And tense expectation was drooping, even to the point of discontent, with a wholly different and immediate sharpness. Her bow chasers fired, followed by the foremost guns of the starboard broadside. Deep voice guns, loud and clear, firing well-spaced, carefully aimed, deliberate shots. And one of Stephen's assistants, who's never been in action before, cries, it has started just as a harmless shot, a harmless round, hits the Bologna side and bounces off. Wow. Mm. <laughs> so, Mike, O'Brien is toying with us here. The yeah. inexperienced crew of the Bologna, I think that it's kicking off. I've, I've got a feeling that we're going to be balked here of our action. So, to, to save the feeling of incipient anticlimax and disappointment, maybe we should all go and grab a glass of something sustaining and calm our nerves a little bit and uh, tell ourselves that we'll be right back after this short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Well, before the break, we were thinking we are, but maybe we're not uh, about to begin this action against the friendship. And uh, we, we get the the update coming in into Stephen's uh, sick berth below. Weatherby comes in and asks Stephen whatever he might want. Weatherby reports, meanwhile, that the Abu Kiyas surgeon would be really grateful for assistance with his casualties. And Stephen asks for an update. Well, is the Bologna going to see any more action? You know, was that thump on the side the beginning of something bigger? Or are we, are we done for the day? You know, Weatherby says we're done. The Frenchmen are running for home. And Stephen packs up his things and leaves. Now, Stephen's clearly contented. No more bloodshed. We, we don't have an idea at the minute what Jack Aubrey's perspective is, but we get to stay with the men in the sick berth. The French 74s, who have got some damage already, had been facing this Abukir resuscitated, the 38-gun Ramillies, and the two perfectly fresh, untouched two-deckers had run. Mr. Mears, the gunner, gives us the word. He's not happy. Call that an action? asked Mr. Mears, unconsciously channeling the spirit of Crocodile Dundee. I call it a fart in a blind alley. A genteel fart in a blind alley, that's what I call it. After all our hurry and preparation, all hands, day and night, then cartridges filled without so much as a hot dinner, screens, ship, decks sanded and wetted, and who for God's sake needed any more water on a goddamn day like this? Well, Mr. Mears, we are with you, sir. Yeah, right. But like, perhaps the problem with this action is that it's not real. I, I, we can't find any reference to an action in about this timeline, 1814, as we've been told several times now, uh, involving the Ramillies and the Abukir. And at this, this time in history, both of those two ships, real ships that they were, were in different places. Interestingly, the Ramillies was on the North American station in the, in the last knockings of the War of 1812. 
and the Abukir was in the Baltic defending Riga, which in another little hark back to the world of C.S. Forrester is uh, a theatre of war that Aubrey never visited, but Horatio Hornblower did. Nice. So, nice. Abukir, Ramillies, n- not, not a thing. Well, Stephen returns from the Abukir and, and he joins Jack uh, for... What was to pass for breakfast? O'Brien says, and you know, and and they're talking. And Jack says, you know, yes, it was disappointing, but they're just starting to talk. And Killick comes in, whisks Stephen right into the quarter gallery, and Killick is telling Stephen off. You know, telling him, you know, the captain can't stand the sight of blood, and here you are soaked in it, dripping on the floor cloth. He has Stephen strip, throw all his clothes into a bucket, wash and rejoin the captain, who he says will not mind waiting. And then I love it. O'Brien tells us that neither Jack nor Stephen are meek or patient. And he writes, mm-hmm. yet, that's right, yet such was Killick's total conviction, his moral superiority, that the one waited for his longed-for coffee without complaint, and the other not only washed obediently, but would have shown both hands front and back if required. <laughs> another, another brilliant Killick moment here for us. <laughs> it's really great. Huh. Well, with, with their submission to Killick kind of gradually shaking out of their system here, Jack tells Stephen about how the French had come to turn tail and run. And Stephen says, well, in that case, why aren't we pursuing them? Jack says, well, if we chase them into the inner bay, we wouldn't have got back out with the wind changing. And if we did, we'd then be right under the batteries. That points at Matthew battery, just as the fog lifted. Captain Fanshawe of the Ramillies comes on board, delighted, he says, to have a cup of real coffee. So presumably there's a few grains of Stephen's right mocker still left. His ship had none, had had no coffee at all, he means, for some time. And he says, what a welcome sight the Bellona and the poor old Grampus were. He had been afraid, he said, that these two ships arriving on scene had been just more Frenchmen turning up to join their friends. Things had not been looking good, but Jack's arrival had turned the tables on the French. And Mike, I start to think, ooh, maybe, maybe rehabilitation for Jack in the eyes of Admiral Stanroff. Right. Jack says, well, the doctor wants to go in and bring them out in triumph. And uh, Fanshawe says, well, if we had some of those old vessels that sail against wind and tide, then maybe we could. Of course, he's being sarcastic and he's yanking Stephen's chain here. But for now, he says, we'll send Abokir into Corsand Bay, back across the other side of the channel, for repairs and return to the dreary life of blockade. So, Mike, we're nearly done with this action, I think. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I think this one's done, but... but then in just a little while, they hear some gunfire on the westerly breeze. And, and I think everybody is, you know, they're, they're already got their adrenaline is running. And Fanshawe reminds Jack that their clear duty is to keep the enemy from getting out. You know, they don't want them to get out and join those ships that they are hearing off of the west there. They want to prevent the enemy from joining forces. So, you know, we have to continue on the blockade, Fanshawe, the... Uh, the senior captain here by a few months. And on Friday, as they've continued the blockade here, a sail is spotted and then a brig and then a ship in her wake. And then they see it's a three-decker. And finally, they realize it's the Charlotte. So it's the Admiral's flagship here. All the ships are working double time to get their captains ready for the signal they know is going to fly in a moment to repair aboard. And they're also making sure they're inspection ready. And their efforts pick up speed, especially the Ramillies with the senior captain, when they see a boat lowered down from the Charlotte. 
But then it's clear, you know, the barge is not headed for the Ramelies. It's headed for the Bologna. And the Bologna's Marines, O'Brien tells us, conduct the fastest, most thorough paced review of 120 odd men in the history of the Corps. (laughs) The Admiral is piped aboard, followed by Mr. Sherman, the Charlotte surgeon. The Admiral asked Jack to join him along with the other captains of the inshore squadron for dinner that afternoon and says that he's here to see Dr. Matron. Jack shows him to the cabin, sends word for Stephen. And then Harding realizes that, you know, everybody has been completely, you know, going out of their mind to get everything, you know, so that he could find absolutely no fault with the ship. But no one had thought to prepare Dr. Matron. So Stephen comes up, O'Brien tells us, unwashed, unbrushed, unshaved, you know, reporting directly from the greasy, malodorous task of dissecting some inedible parts of yet another one of the porpoises that they'd caught like over a month ago. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm like, at, at this oh. point, my kind of naive reading says, oh, th- this is a disaster. The Admiral already hates Jack. He's come herring aboard. And the one person the Admiral kind of liked was Stephen Maturin, but now Stephen Maturin stood there covered in porpoise slime. Th- this is going to be terrible. Jack's just going to double down on being hated by the Admiral. Drum roll. But no, thank the Lord. The Admiral's not bothered by any of the slime and the uh, the porpoise grease. He jumps straight out of his chair with an outstretched hand, expresses his great sense of the doctor's goodness in prescribing a remedy for him. He said he had known it would answer, but had no idea it would answer this well. And by way of illustration, he says he'd run up to the main top that morning. He had wanted to consult Dr. Maturin, but Mr. Sherman said no physical gentleman of Dr. Maturin's eminence would consent to examine one of his patients without Mr. Sherman there. And Stephen says Mr. Sherman is in the right of it. It's a medical convention as rigid as any convention held by the Royal Navy, just like conversing in Latin in front of a patient because that's accurate and concise. So Stephen's very happy for the two of them now to consult with the Admiral together and examine him. I might a little victory there. I, I kind of wasn't expecting that, but then on the other hand, I I kind of was. There you go. <laughs> I do. We, we get another nice little killick moment here. Stephen's explaining that speaking Latin is a you know an, an efficient and a, a a polite way to go about things, but Killick listening on the other side of the door explains his different perspective on this to his mate. Once they start talking foreign, mate. It's all up. You can send for the sexton as soon as you like. Here lieth Arthur Grimble, died of the Marthambles, breast bearing west by north, 10 leagues, 1814. <laughs> so, I love it. another great Killick moment. It's a great chapter for Killick. And by the way, O'Brien really, really wants us to know that it's 1814. Right. Here we go. Yet another reminder. Right. Yeah. Well, in Latin, we find out the real reason that. Doctors talk in Latin, which is so that the patient can't understand it. Stephen's telling Sherman to be careful and steadily diminish the digitalis. And whatever he does, do not tell the patient the name of the drug and do not let him have access to it. Stephen's words, uh, O'Brien writes, more men, particularly sailors, have died from self-administered doses than ever the enemy killed in action. Then, in English, 
Stephen tells the Admiral that all the anomalies they'd originally seen are virtually gone. And if he continues to run up to the main top an hour after a late breakfast every morning and listen to Mr. Sherman, he says, I see no reason why you should not rival Methuselah and succeed officers as yet unborn as Admiral of the fleet. The Admiral thanks Stephen and then includes Sherman. You know, he's like, thank you, Steve. Oh, right, right. And he bows to Sherman here. And as he's leaving with a little embarrassment, he invites Stephen to dine aboard the Charlotte with Aubrey and the other captains. And I was wondering about this. Why, why this little embarrassment? Is it like I haven't done it before or is it, oh my God, this guy's covered in porpoise slime. (laughs) I'm inviting him to come here on my ship. Wonder how that's going to go. I don't know. Yeah, and maybe he still sees Stephen Maturin as part of the surgeon class, and he's not sure about the social oh. propriety of bringing him into the elevated sphere of his personal dining table. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway. And maybe Sherman not invited. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I'm inviting you, but not not the guy who's not slimy. And this, this Methuselah reference made me smile I, I don't know why there's an m on the end of it. it seems to be the french spelling of the english word methuselah and i think i remember from somewhere knowing that methuselah was very old particularly it turns out um methuselah was noah's grandfather in the old testament said to have died at the age of 969 and even he must have been able to hoist his flag at some point if he lived that long <laughs> <laughs> anyhow the, the name methuselah synonymous with longevity and you know a nice gracious way to say to the admiral here you're going to live a plenty long time nice lord stranra's dinner then despite the the smells brought in by stephen (laughs) turns out to be excellent and the captains are really getting well taken care of from a food perspective they've been doing without fresh supplies for so long that they really tuck in greedily almost no conversation yeah a little bit like we've heard of midshipmen at the captain's table before Stephen's sitting at the foot of the table next to the captain of the fleet, who, in a low, confidential voice, entertained him with a highly detailed account of his prolonged digestive processes. And we feel bad for Stephen. I'm sure we feel bad for any physician who's ever had a dinner party guest who wants to tell them all about the nasty rash that they picked up on holiday. Right. And just as the captain of the fleet moves on to talk about the effects of cardamom on his digestion, uh, another substance that he can't eat, uh, he realized that there's the silence along the table because the Admiral is about to make an announcement. And before we get to the Admiral's announcement, Mike, cardamom is quite a cute little ingredient for O'Brien to have put in here, right? Well, it's, it's great because, you know, cardamom, besides fabulous in Indian food and, and, you know, useful in other places, has some additional uses, one of which is to help prevent the formation of gas or to help expel it. And, and so, you know, I couldn't help but snicker a little bit at this O'Brien joke about the guy who can't stop talking about himself. And, you know, we're now on cardamom at about, you know, being way too gassy. Mm. Now, back to the Admiral's news. He wants to share some news, realizing that news doesn't often make it to this part of this particular cutoff squadron, as he calls it, this is Siberia. And he hopes that the news he's going to share is going to incline everyone to drink the royal toast with even greater fervor. With Napoleon battling the Germans and the Austrians, with his forces in the north, his left flank is open. And that means that the Allies are marching on an almost undefended Paris. Wellington, who's down in the south of France, has taken Toulouse. He's crossed the Adour and is moving north quickly. And by the way, Mike, this is all spot on for what was happening in uh, the 1813-1814 campaign. Nice. There's a Congress meeting 
at Châtillon. But having refused reasonable terms from this Congress three times, Napoleon, with no organized army, has nothing really to gain, so the Congress is awash. The ships which had recently sailed from Brest and those that the offshore squadron had met west of Ushant were to join for a final fling. But the gallant Captain Fanshawe and Beveridge of the offshore squadron had put an end to their capers. And this, these captains of the, around the table uh, beat on the table and raised their glasses and bowed to Ramillies and Beveridge. The Admiral knows that it's unlucky to predict a fortunate outcome, but he believes there will be a sensible end to the Congress, and he adds, the downfall of Napoleon, the end of this war, and our return to England, home and beauty. And here comes his toast. Gentlemen, the King. Well, Killick tries to relate this news to the lower deck right after dinner, but he hadn't really followed Admiral Stranraer's manner of speaking very well, and the lower deck for themselves were too distracted by the arrival of supplies and, of course, mail. No cruel tidings had reached anyone on the Bologna, which was a rarity after such a long absence of mail. There was mild news as well from Woolcombe. Sophie's bantam hen had had some chicks. Diana and Clarissa were furnishing their wing. There was even, be still my heart, a rumour that Captain Griffiths had meant to sell up and move to London. So, Mike, times seem to be changing for the better here. They do. They do. But interestingly, despite all this good news, Jack's still low in his spirits. You know, he asked Stephen if the Admiral's account was reasonable. And Stephen says, well, it coincides with everything that he's heard, you know, about the end of the war. And and Jack says that he must have looked really foolish carrying on about the French Navy. And Stephen says, no, 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 your, you know, your analysis made complete sense from a naval point of view. And you had no notion that Bonaparte had completely lost his wits on land. And then Jack says, well, he's, he's not saying anything bad against Captain Fanshawe, but he does think the Admiral could have mentioned the Bologna in his remarks. He says, our people work like demons to get there in time. And if they hadn't, it would have been a bloody disaster. So, you know, we're back here to this, you know, Jack really understanding how, you know, how much the Admiral's got it in for him. You know, he tells Stephen he's very glad about Stephen's scheme for Chile since there's clearly he would say no distinction for him on this side of the ocean. And Jack concludes saying, I do not mean to top it the tragedy, Queen Stephen, and I should not say this to anyone else, but I feel the yellow rising about my gills. Uh-oh. It's Chile sounding more and more attractive to Aubrey uh, Cochran. I mean, Aubrey, yeah, him, Aubrey. <laughs> <laughs> well, Harding comes in to share the news that He's, he's joined the squirearchy as well. His wife has inherited a small estate in Dorset between the villages of Plush and Folly. And Harding, therefore, is going to be a squire of Plush. And Jack gives him joy, congratulates him, says, we'll be neighbours. I have a son of school there. But here comes a witticism. He must warn Harding, he says, that Plush often leads to Folly. And Harding replies, well, yes, sir, and doesn't know how to respond until he finally realises Aubrey's witticism. And O'Brien helps us out here in parenthesis. Perhaps the best thing Jack had ever said. When grog is served out, the ordinary members of each mess of semen receive slightly less than the regular measure. And by ancient custom, the amount of grog left, the leftovers, was often called plush and belonged to the cook of the mess, to the semen who had served it out. And unless he had a good head for rum... Him consuming this extra plush often led to commit a foolish action. So plush 
leads to folly. And it's nice of O'Brien to put this relatively good quality witticism in the mouth of Jack, right? It, it really is. You know, Harding recovers himself, you know, says it's the best thing he's ever heard in the naval line. And he's sh- going to be sure to write it down. His wife will roar <laughs> over it. And then he says, well, you know, but, but I, I actually came to invite you to dinner in the wardroom tomorrow now that we have supplies again. So a great joke. Again, another time that O'Brien saying it's the best thing that Aubrey ever said. I'm thinking, Boy, O'Brien seems to be waxing nostalgic or something for Jack here. It's like, I've got, he's the best captain. He said the best line. <laughs> Fascinating. But. And it's funny, it's, it's one of those jokes that sticks in your brain as well. I, I, if you'd asked me, I would have said plush leads to folly occurs quite a few times in the canon, maybe even as often as a curtailed joke. But no, this is, this is the one and only time we get plush leads to folly. So it's, it's one of Jack's better moments, clearly. Now, Jack had not told Stephen that he thought the Admiral's dinner had had very little wine and bad wine at that. Um, and O'Brien says that this nearness with the wine uh, is because the Admiral is not a not a wine lover. He doesn't drink wine for pleasure. He thinks the people will judge by the label and by the price. And since they can't see either the label or the price at this dinner, they're not going to know the difference. The same, we learn, could not be said for the wardroom's dinner because Stephen is in charge of the wine and he provides an excellent one stronger than their usual, and the conversation gets louder. And Jack looks down the wardroom table at all the faces he knows, and there's this little moment of quiet, and everybody hears the officer of the watch above crying, Bileo. And Jack repeats it to the table with this very sort of regretful undertone, I think. He says, we'll all have to belay soon, meaning we'll have to tie up, belay, and pay off. War, he says, is a bad thing, but it's been their way of life for 20 years. And for most of them, war remains their only hope of professional advancement of a ship and promotion. And he describes to the wardroom how his heart had sunk in the year 1802 with the Peace of Amiens. His spirit so low, he said, that he could have hung himself if he could have afforded a piece of rope. But that peace didn't last. In the year 1804, he was made post and he wraps up the chapter with a little look ahead. I throw this out, he says, because if one piece with an untrustworthy enemy can be broke, another piece with the same fellow can be broke too, and our country will certainly need defending above all by sea. So, filling his glass again, let us drink to the paying off, and may it be a peaceful, orderly, and cheerful occasion, followed by a short, I repeat, very short, run ashore. End of chapter nine. Whoa. And Mike, it's, it's interesting. We've, Like you've said before, we've had this rhythm going of long and in-depth chapter followed by a short kind of plot-oriented one. Same thing again here. But meanwhile, happy days. The, the war is ending, which is almost a happy thing for Jack. We've got happiness in the mail coming from Wilcombe. We've got the war winding down. Bellona had a chance for action, but she emerged from it, you know, at, at least with, you know, with no casualties aboard. The chapter's ending suggests that maybe chances for action are now going to be few and far between. Yeah, which which kind of, you know, all of it leaves me as kind of like, well, wait a minute. Okay, so everything's okay domestically. Everything's okay in Brest. Everything's okay. No more action coming up. Uh, wait, you still got a whole chapter left, O'Brien. What's ha- happened here? And so I, I kept thinking to myself, well, wait a minute. So Jack still has this fallout of the Admiral's opinion, punishment, for him, 
But then again, I remind myself the chili option is looking better to Jack, and he appears to be moving, you know, from not only accepting it, but being grateful for it. And I thought, okay, I guess we could move on to that. You know, in addition to it being just, you know, a sh- one of these little short chapters that, that you know, sets up the things along, there were a couple of interesting points here that, you know, kind of, I've, I've mentioned them along. I thought, you know, what's going on here? We had one of Stephen Maturin's greatest hits. We had the suprapubic cystotomy. We haven't had this, I think, since the Wine Dark Sea. Maybe it's because with Jack's star being in the Ascendant, he wanted to remind us that Stephen is still the resourceful guy, the well-connected guy. He's reminding us as well of the connection between Stephen and his patient, that whole thing with the spirits of wine and Stephen looking in on the sick bay. Stephen's in a kind of nurturing role. We've had these connections mirrored in other directions as well. We've had the crew looking after Stephen. We've had Jack mentoring characters and characters in, in their turn looking after Jack. We've got Reed. We've got other people around who've been mentored by Jack. Maybe we're just getting a reminder here of the connections of family and fellowship. And I wonder what that means for us, for what might be coming in the very last pages of the book. Yeah, I, I think it's it's a you know it's a great question, Ian. And I'm struck, you know, thinking about what else could be coming. I mentioned earlier that I was a, a little bit concerned because all of O'Brien's comments about Jack's great skills. You know, we've had a lot of O'Brien praising Jack's skills in the past, but he seems to be really putting it on heavy here, you know, all the things that Jack processes simultaneously, navigating in difficult waters. You know, we've had some of this before in battle, preparing for battle, uh, you know, making his way through a gale, but this chapter seemed to be even more. And then calling out that, you know, this is the best thing that Jack ever said. And I think, well, Jack's going to say some more things, right, O'Brien? Aren't we, you know, is this it? Is this like, you know, you know, put a pin in this, never going to say anything. And, and uh, you know, all of this seems to be going a little bit further in O'Brien really pointing out, you know, how great Jack is and everything, even though he's in tough times. And I wondered, you know, this is his 18th novel. Is O'Brien yeah. looking back a little bit nostalgically? Is he thinking about, or is there more like, oh my gosh, sometimes, you know, when all these good things get said about somebody, you know, something happens to him. Who knows? Oh. Well, the, things things never run entirely straightforwardly in the world of Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin. Um, happily, though, in the world of Ian and Mike, things are running just fine. So fine, in fact, that Mike, you're ready to head off on vacation. Um, you're going on the Stephen Maturin trail, right? I am. I am. It, I, I have never, all, 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 despite being all over the world, I've never been to Ireland. And all of this Stephen Maturin, week in and week out, has said, you know, got to go, got to go. So, so you know, next week, I think we're taking a little break. Thank you, everyone, for uh, for the indulgence. I'll be traveling all around Ireland and then riding with my bride across some of the northern coast there. So uh-huh. it won't be one of uh, Diana's Arabs, but I'm sure we're going to find some fine Irish horses as well. Wonderful. So next week, watch out for a little message from me and a little treat in our social media channels um, connected to the music of the canon. We'll, we'll, we'll pull out something for you in the musical line. And then the week after that, Mike, I wonder what we've got in store for us. We've got the final chapter of the Yellow Admiral. Maybe that means more action on the breast blockade. Maybe that means more news from home. Maybe that means we move straight on to paying off or heading to Chile. Who knows? I think there could only be one way to find out. What do you say, Mike, the week after next to just a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? I should like that of all things. Thank you.
by the arrival of supplies and, of course, mail. Noel, sorry, Noel. <laughs> no cruel tidings had reached anyone on the Bologna, which was a rare...